Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You must remember this. A kiss is just a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Yes, they do. But is a kiss a fundamental thing? Certainly in this hour and time and day and year and month, it would be a fundamental thing. But the status of kissing over the ages has varied a little bit. Uh, and the status of kissing around the world is not painted in one color. There are cultures that just don't do it and think it's gross. Uh, and for us, and this is where we're going to begin today's show, for us, I think it's a kind of marker. You know, it's just a cultural marker. A certain kind of thing is happening right now. And, and what is that thing? Well, to find out what is that thing, you have to have at your disposal a licensed semiotician. Fortunately, we do have one, and he's been with us before. Uh, and we have also recommended his work on Yelp, uh, you know, to people who are seeking a semiotician uh, and don't know where to find one. Marcel Denesi is Professor Emeritus of Linguistic Anthropology at the University of Toronto and author of The History of the Kiss, The Birth of Popular Culture. Welcome back to our show, Marcel. I'm delighted to be back. Thank you. <laughs> so let's let's see if we can sort of compress a, a lot into a little bit of time here. But so people have been kissing pretty much since the word go. Not everybody, not every culture, as I said. But you know we have evidence now from uh, Mesopotamia, circa circa 2500 BC, uh, of kissing as a romantic expression, probably between a married couple. Interestingly, we, apparently we can also date the rise of the herpes virus connected to cold source. Uh, also probably existing right around that time. But um, and then, you know, a thousand years later, it's in India. Uh, and as you point out in your book, uh, Catullus is, of course, you know, just talking about hundreds and thousands and thousands and hundreds of kisses uh, in that famous poem. But I think you make the argument that that's stuff that mostly was going on behind closed doors, that kissing kind of in Western culture has a kind of moment when it goes a little bit more public, hence the subtitle of your book. Tell us what you mean by that. Yes, well, you know, it's what the kiss means. I have to tell you that in class one day, a student brought up to me, says, why do people, you know, engage in such disgusting, unhygienic behavior <laughs> in her culture would be considered that? And where did it all start? So what I did, I instantly picked up the Iliad and the Odyssey, read through them twice in both English and Italian. I couldn't find one instance of the kiss oscul osculation behavior as meaning I'm in love with you. The first instances of this, I know this is going to sound crazy, is in poetry because the semiotician looks for texts uh, mm -hmm. and to see for evidence of the meaning of some sign or some text, some some code or some symbol system. The first evidence comes. <laughs> In Italy, of all places, I'm not making this up because people say, well, you're Italian. Sure, well, it's in the Dolce Stile Nuovo, a genre of literature which actually starts in Sicily and works its way up to um, Florence, where Dante 
the Petrarch in particular, start to see it as um, something extremely meaningful. Um, the woman's role changes at that point in time as songs by the troubadours, paintings, sculptures start to, um, you know, kind of emblemize this act, not as a sexual act, <laughs> but apparently as an act of betrayal. In other words, you kissed the one you wanted to make love to rather than the one you were told to marry and make love to. I use the example of Paolo and Francesca in Dante's Divine Comedy as the prototypical example. Uh, make a short, a long story short, uh, Francesca is supposed to marry this very ugly man by, you know, uh, family arrangement. She really doesn't like him, but she loves his brother, Paolo. And in, in fact, they meet in uh, clandestine situations and they kiss and the brother sees them and ends up killing them both. That kiss is um, the basis of Rodin's famous sculpture, of many paintings, and a whole set of cultural events and scripts that derive from that one act of betrayal, and yet so powerful. Right, we could throw uh, we could throw Tchaikovsky into the mix too, right? This, he's a new... Absolutely, absolutely. Anyhow, that's the gist of it. So, but so let's, let's just, to... but Marcel, let's just pause there because there's something I want you to unpack that I think is really interesting. So, yeah, so into the 13th century, we've got Francesca de Rimini and and her dear friend uh, <laughs> betraying uh, the intended husband, um, and then you know it's like he's a they are contemporaries of Dante more or less, and so maybe 40 years later he's got them in the Dante he's got them in the divine comedy and they're in hell you know and then let's go another what 500 years ahead or so and to Rodin so when Rodin does that famous sculpture the kiss it's really kind of part of his whole gates of hell sequence he's got this massive idea you know and he himself says you know it doesn't really fit all that well, does it? It just looks like people who really like each other, who are really super attractive, who are making out. I don't. I, he said this in French, obviously, and I'm sure using somewhat different language. And that's kind of an interesting thing, right? He didn't. He wasn't able to take it and make it into the dark thing that it's supposed to be in its sources. And I, I'm wondering, at least by his own lights, he sort of says that. And I'm wondering what you think about that idea that the kiss had just turned into something else by the by the 1800s, you know, the, the kiss was a, a different animal. Yeah, and even mature. By the way, Rodin does put it at the gates of hell, which is he does, the but beginning. He, of but he kind of sequesters yeah. it a little bit. He's got a yeah. little special space for this stuff. And he says it is just not as dark as some of the other stuff. Right. No, and in fact, um, it goes from being a secret uh, act behind the scenes done by lovers under the moon or under the stars to a public act but it does so very, with much, much difficulty. You know, um, to this day, kissing in public probably is seen as something very sweet, but it wasn't so in my own days growing up. In fact, I got thrown out of a mall for kissing my <laughs> wife in public because that's the kind of thing you do not do in public. By the way, Toronto was rather Victorian at the time. <laughs> so, yes, um, the meaning uh, of that kiss, in fact... If you go to a romantic comedy, a movie, or watch it, and there is no kiss in it, you'll say, give me my money back. 
<laughs> well, I, I came to see the apotheosis of that act. It is it's amazing to me how a simple act, which can be interpreted as very obscene and or unhygienic or irrelevant, can turn into something so powerful. But that's the power of semiosis in human life. Right. It's and a necessity. My- Let me tell you a quick story about that. I'd love to hear you. You probably you may know this already, but I, it's a perfect thing for you to unpack with the semiotics. So in uh, 2005, I think, uh, a version of Pride and Prejudice comes out. It's the one that has Kira Knightley in it and Matthew McFadden. Uh, and at the end of it, in the print released to the U- U.S. market, they kiss. Mr. Darcy and Lizzie kiss, which is not in the book. Uh, and the Jane Austen purists here in America went nuts and they didn't like that. But most test audiences seem to like it. That's eh, pretty good. Like, it's, it's what you just said, Marcel. I went to a rom-com. I expect to see people kiss. They didn't have that in the UK release. The UK release didn't have the kiss. Uh, and once the UK audiences found out about it, they some of them were lobbying for the DVD release to have the kiss. But maybe just talk a little bit about that from the spread of Austen who is not going to do that in her novel, to, as you say, audiences who say, well, of course they're going to kiss. It's a rom-com. Yeah, you know, there have been many various events in popular culture that brought the kiss into the normality, uh, you know, framework. The first ever public showing in America of a movie, what was it, 20, 40 second long by Edison, is of an older couple kissing. <laughs> it was banned everywhere. You know, it was the Nickelodeon um, uh, era. And, well, I think this very clever man knew that it would attract everyone, and and so it did. Not to mention Andy Warhol uh, just before he died with his, um, you know, representation, movie and painting representations of the kiss as a subversive act. In this case, in a different uh, you know, interpretation of gender. Um, and in fact, Bro- uh, Brokeback Mountain uh, was very controversial at first, not so much so now because it broke the barriers of, uh, you know, the type of uh, gender relationships that are involved and the kiss can break it. it. When I saw that movie, I said, we're back to the medieval ages. <laughs> the kiss is bringing about another revolution. Yeah, I want to circle back to that because I think it's it's important. But Yes, the point that you were making earlier, that kissing in public for a long, long time and until recently was an aberration rather than a regularity, uh, a bug rather than a feature. And I think for that reason, we got our information about it as we got about so many things from watching movies and television later. And and there's a wonderful scene in the Salinger story uh, to Esme with Love and Squalor, which is about a soldier in World War II with PTSD who encounters this young girl and her even younger brother, I think, in a tea shop. And the younger brother, he's a little boy. He comes over uh, in his uh, striped shirt and navy blue jersey uh, and necktie, and he says, uh, he says, he gazed at me with immense green eyes. Why do people in films kiss sideways, he demanded. Sideways, I said. It was a problem that had baffled me in my childhood. I said I guessed it was because actors' noses are too big for kissing anyone head on. Um <laughs> And I, I remember, Marcel, as a kid, you know, when I hadn't kissed anybody, and I would watch movies like that. And I had, I had the same question, too. It's like, is that how you're supposed to do it? It's like, does one person have to turn their head way sideways and kind of put their nose across the, the cheekbone of another person? I mean, we watch movies partly to figure out how to do stuff that isn't done in the flesh in front of us. 
you know, uh, I was talking, I was actually arguing with my grandson, who's almost 30 now, by the way, about kissing yesterday, because I told him I was going to be on. And um, he said, you know, eh, heck, romance is all an invention. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. It is a feeling. And kisses do bring about feelings. Uh, I was talking to a, a neuropsychologist way back before I wrote the book, and in fact, it gener- you know it generates uh, you know chemicals in the brain and so on. But that, but that is culture specific, because it could generate other chemicals that say this is disgusting. So, <laughs> as as any sign, it has to work its way into a code, and that code is the romantic code. And if you look at images starting way back in the medieval ages of, you know, star-crossed lovers, of poetry of women as angels or devils, depending what part of the, you know, of the spectrum of love you see them as, you start to see that kiss, it all revolves around the act of kissing. You know, it was, um, kissing was uh, also put with an X, uh, a sign of X, which we still use today, you know, X's and O's. Mm -hmm. Not sure where the O comes from, but the X was, uh, you know, signed, sealed with a kiss, um, done as as a way to show that I would like to officially tell you that you and I have a secret meeting (laughs) Mm-hmm. Because, um, at, you know, the rose as well was a secret, a symbol of secrecy in ancient Rome. Suberosa mean don't go beyond this door because something secret is going on. So these symbols were, how can I say, recycled, recalibrated to mean something else. Betrayal, subversion, um, all kinds of contrary transgressive acts defines popular culture at its beginning. Then, of course, it becomes mainstream. The uh, you know the panic subsides, and everybody nostalgically looks back and says, ah, "I really love that." But not initially. To this day, I still remember when Elvis Presley came out. He was condemned by religious people, the very same people who today praise him. So that's what happened, I think, with that kiss. We might have already talked about this, but I believe that actually Elvis is this really transitional figure between kind of the profane and the sacred. And there are pictures in the South of him shaking hands with Jesus painted onto black velvet. But before, I wanted to sort of cover some other stuff. There's a way in which I think the kiss is sometimes an interesting fulcrum or a sign of a change. And it often is preceded by hostilities between two people. We have it in, in Much Ado About Nothing. Finally, Benedict says to Beatrice, I will stop thy mouth. And he kisses her. You know, But they've been sort of bickering for the entire play. Um, and here in American culture, uh, I don't know how much of this penetrated your world, but in Cheers, in uh, Sam and Diane are having this terrible fight. They've been fighting nonstop through like two seasons of Cheers. Cheers. I can't, I don't know. Uh, and finally, they're saying horrible things to each other and they look at each other and Sam says, are you as turned on as I am? And then they kiss. Uh, and there's sort of a way in which the kiss is a different kind of betrayal there, right? It sort of says, okay, we now have to show you what's really going on. You've heard Beatrice and Benedict bickering all the time. Here's what's really happening. And the kiss kind of is transformative at, of the moment. But I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. You know, I guess the movies have been so instrumental in propagating these different connotations of the kiss. Think of Pretty Woman, but even, you know, television, uh, <laughs> Big Bang Theory, one of my favorite sitcoms, Seinfeld, 
Kissing is rare in these sitcoms because it binds people together emotionally in a way that the characters of those sitcoms and um, and movies, for example, in other areas, um, they don't want to be bound in that way. Eventually it happens and therefore the whole their lives, their lives change. I should mention that early uh, sitcoms such as I Love Lucy and so on, rarely, if ever, <laughs> portray the kiss, uh, um, even in uh, family uh, situations. Clearly, popular culture has recalibrated, redefined the meanings of kisses. And um, it's, you know, sometimes you wonder, how does this get out there? How does it change other societies? And I'm pretty well convinced that um, by um, kind of blocking the meanings of the kiss in other societies, the idea maybe is I'm preserving my local culture, my traditions, and my courtship practices, and not making them go balunka along the American cult- cultural way. Because the kiss is, the, is a choice by the two people, ideally, although we'll get into some instances where it's not, but it's a choice you get to make. You have the freedom Absolutely. to decide to kiss another person or, or not kiss them. I want to talk a little bit about that kind of transformative nature of kissing, too. So another area that it comes up is in minority cultures and, and their relationship to the majority. In 67, we get Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Now, Sidney Poitier and Catherine Houghton, the only time they kiss in that movie, interestingly, it's seen... I think they're in a taxi, and it's seen in the rearview mirror. Uh, you can see a little bit of them kissing. And it's like the filmmakers going, "Okay, they're a couple, and they kiss. We're not really going to show you. A, we're going to show you it in a mirror, a little bit fragment, a fragment. Just like we can't really go all the way with you." But the following year, Marcel, as I'm sure you know, on Star Trek in 1968, we had the first black-white interracial kiss. And, you know, there are interracial kisses that precede that. They often involve white men and Asian or South Asian or Filipino women. But the black-white kiss, obviously, in America, with its incredibly fraught uh, racial dynamics, was a big deal. So you had Lieutenant Uhuru and Captain Kirk kiss. And that really was seen, once again, as maybe pop culture marking a moment. But what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, no, no. It was a moment of transgression, (laughs) Uh, and these moments, that one there on uh, Star Trek, uh, the Brokeback Mountain, but even the first one with Edison, and then there was one in the 1920s, which escapes me now, of um, a woman kissing another woman. I think, uh, forget the, I forget what the movie was. These changed the world. People at first reacted with, uh, well, repulsion, with criticism, and then eventually they became mainstream. They worked their way into our brains to become part of popular culture and everyday life. But I don't have to go to movies. I was brought up in an Italian immigrant family uh, in post-war Italy here in Toronto. I never saw my parents, my grandparents, my relatives ever, ever kiss in public. I know they did it. (laughs) Uh, They talked about it, but they never did it in public because that display was, it's putting intimacy on display. And that was a for, uh, a forbidden thing in the culture that I was brought up in. So I can understand diverse, the diverse reactions to the kiss directly. Right. And, and it's still going on. Uh, last year in the movie Lightyear, uh, we had uh, – this is a Disney product now. We had uh, two female characters uh, kissing, and that was um, briefly pulled from the movie and then added back when uh, when employees protested. There, I do think that there are different valences. 
I think a black man kissing a white woman in Star Trek would have, I mean, the, the Kirk Uhuru thing, it was nothing. There was not a big blowback about it at all. People just sort of dealt with it. But if I think if it had been black man, white woman, that had been different. That has a different set of valences. And I think to this day, two men kissing is different from two women kissing. There have been a lot more filmic representations of women kissing uh, than of men. There's, the comfort levels just seem to be different. Yeah, except when Britney Spears kissed Madonna at the Super Bowl. I mean, the maximum American event as a subversive transgressive act. That kind of got people's attention, didn't it? Well, yeah, the Super, the Super Bowl is like a cathedral, Marcel. It's, you know, there's certain yeah. things that you can do out on the street that you can't do in the cathedral. Absolutely. I want to talk about another kiss that's close to your heart and mind. So. Okay. End of World War II, people are thronging on VE Day in, in Times Square, uh, and Alfred Eisenstadt captures this picture of a sailor kissing a, a woman. It's a woman he has just seized in his arms. According to Eisenstadt later, this young man was just running through Times Square kissing everybody, every woman, young and old, that he encountered. And Eisenstadt mm -hmm. saw this woman who was wearing kind of a light-colored outfit, and he thought, I'm just going to watch her and see if he kisses her because I'll get a great picture, and he does. So this is an interesting thing too because this is not a this is a one way thing at least initially, right? It's it's not she doesn't volunteer for this. She just gets grabbed and she gets immortalized. Say how you interpret that moment and the way it is. It's so iconic. I mean, the minute I started talking, ninety percent of the audience knew what I was talking about. Yeah. You know, I use that example in um, what I call I, the iconic kiss. Iconic both in the uh, pop culture sense of, you know, we'll never forget it, but also in the semiotic sex, uh, kiss uh, sense of uh, something that resembles something else. And what made me think about that something else is that the expression make love, not war. And um, what better symbol or iconic symbol of making love rather than more than that act there captured in a moment uh, that becomes immortalized by the photograph. Um, you know, with uh, this idea of being able to make your selfies and so on, the, the power of the photograph as capturing a fleeting moment and immortalizing it is probably gone. So when that image comes to my mind, it says it caught a fleeting moment a moment of redemption, a moment that says, you know what, this is where society should be going towards. You know, it's 12 years later. I know it's later. It may seem like a long time when uh, the hippies came around and said, let's make love, not war. And they would kiss and make love in, in public as a kind of act saying, well, we are not part of the establishment. We don't care about war. We only care about one thing, making love. So that, you know, I may be stretching it a bit, but as an ex-hippie, <laughs> I remember that very picture on some t-shirts. And I looked for that t-shirt and could never found it as a 19, 20-year-old in the 1960s. But I, it was I, think it, I think it's also important in that case that the two people are essentially anonymous. In fact, there have been these Zapruder-like reconstructions. There's an entire book about who these people actually were, and people came oh, yeah. forward claiming to be the people, and maybe they were, maybe they won't. Weren't, but it almost aided that because it yeah. became they became placeholders, a male and female placeholder for the kind of spirit that you're talking about. Uh, and and 
and it was almost probably helpful that we didn't know too many details of them or what they went on to do. I just very quickly want to contrast that with two things. One of them is the 2000 Democratic National Convention, Al Gore, probably hoping to differentiate himself from Bill Clinton, who's been having quite, yeah. quite publicized marital problems, ha- is joined on stage by his then-wife, Tipper, and he yeah. seizes her in his arms and he he kisses her pretty passionately. It, it clocked three seconds, which doesn't sound much, but it's a lot in TV time on stage for two people to be kissing at a political <laughs> event. And I think that was meant to be iconic. And And maybe part of the problem, Marcel, is if you want it to be iconic, you're probably going to fail because you just haven't tapped into the right instincts. You know, that's a that's a very good question. I, I'm not sure I, I would know how to answer it because things happen. I, I, you know, happenstance guides more than planning life. I mean, if you think about the uh, origins of um, popular music in the jazz idiom of the 1920s, the 1920s happened. Nobody really, you know, there's too many factors that converge to bring about uh, a moment. And then all of a sudden, we imaginative creatures, creative beyond any stretch of the imagination, come forth and create songs, dances, uh, and all other kinds of artifacts that go beyond the situation. You know, pop culture is not folk culture. Folk culture doesn't change. Pop culture is constantly changing. It's always bringing in new signs, new forms, new ideas, which, however, still form a historical paradigm. I mean, you can hear jazz in modern day rap. You really can. Um, But, you know, um, to answer that question. I, I was know, just poising. I was poising it just for fun. Hey, really quickly here because we're kind of out of time. But so now we can contrast. We can contrast um, Eisenstadt capturing this involuntary on one side moment of kissing with what happened quite recently in this summer. Luis Rubiales, a Spanish soccer or football official, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. kisses one of the players, uh, Jenny Hermoso, uh, after this World Cup final victory and gets suspended and is forced to resign and I think was facing some kind of criminal charges in Spain where that could be considered sexual assault. So so not not quite the same impact as the Eisenstadt stat grab. So what's going on there real quick? Well, you know, it, it actually reinforces the idea that the kiss is a private act and uh, an act, an intimate act, uh, like my parents and others in my community knew. You, when you do it in public, if you want to do it in public, it better be among intimates or between intimates and not between just acquaintances or even friends. If you know, friends do kiss, but on the cheek, uh, they hug. If it goes to the lips, <laughs> we're in a, in a different area. And that's what that did. And it, but really, <laughs> I said to myself, we've got a problem here. And we sure did. Yeah, that was a big problem. Yeah. So Marcel Denesi, uh, Professor Emeritus of Linguistic Anthropology at the University of Toronto, our favorite semiotician anywhere, and author of The History of the Kiss, The Birth of Popular Culture. Uh, thanks for this. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about the anthropology, the aforementioned anthropology.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. I feel so smoochy when I hold your hand, look in your eyes. I feel so smoochy when I touch your lips that I realize that to hold you near makes rainbows appear. Life is just one long kiss with the moon shining down and the stars kind of frown. Say golly, just look we miss. I feel so smoochy. Well, Kurt Elling, maybe you feel smoochy, but not everybody does. Not everybody all around the world here to help us understand that better is Matthew Longcore, Director of Membership and Outreach for the Human Relations Area of Files at Yale University and an adjunct faculty member in anthropology at the University of Connecticut, Stanford. Matthew, welcome to our conversation. Hi, thank you for having me today. So we should say the Human Relations Area of Files, this is a big database of kind of anthropological understanding of cultural diversity. Is that more or less what we're doing there? That's correct. Yeah. So the Human Relations Area of Files, which we refer to as HARAF, which is pronounced like giraffe, is a, a longtime agency at Yale University, which specializes in cross-cultural research. And we do produce databases, including EHRAF World Cultures, which contains ethnographic information on over 360 cultures in the world. And so, yes, it is a database that is used by cross-cultural researchers to ask questions about whether a practice is um, culturally universal or not, such as romantic kissing. Yeah, so I, if I were to ask that database, what percentage of the people around the world engage in romantic kissing on the mouth, what would I find out? Well, that's exactly what happened in 2015. A group of social scientists actually used our database um, and they they did a, a collection of data that surveyed 168 cultures. And they found that the majority of those cultures, 54% demonstrate no evidence of romantic kissing. So they actually proved through ethnographic data that this is not culturally universal. So we kind of know that from some of the early groundbreaking, early 20th century, century anthropology, right? We know uh, Bronislaw Malinowski uh, with the Trabrian Islanders. He writes, certainly it never forms a self-contained independent source of pleasure, nor is it a definitive preliminary stage of lovemaking, as is the case with us. This caress was never spontaneously mentioned by the natives, and to direct inquiries, I always received a negative answer. The natives know, however, that white people, quote, will sit, will press mouth against mouth. They are pleased with it, but they regard it as a rather insipid and silly form of amusement. So it's not only the case, I think, that in a lot of cultures, people don't do it, but when they're told about it or asked to respond to it, they often go, 
or then in many cases, and the same thing happens with Henri Junard uh, looking at uh, South, the South African Sangha people. When they saw the custom adopted by the Europeans, they said laughingly, look at these people. They suck each other. They eat each other's saliva and dirt. <laughs> so, exactly. yeah, I mean, say a little bit more about this. There's no guarantee that they'll even have a neutral response to it. That's right. So the study defined romantic sexual kissing as lip-to-lip contact that may or may not be prolonged. So we're thinking, of course, of the French kiss or the proverbial French kiss, um, the open mouth kiss where tongues touch other tongues. And this practice, um, you know, from ethnographic research seems to be associated with Western society, stratified societies, and definitely um, connected to the concept of sexual foreplay. Uh, it's also part of PDA or public displays of affection. We don't see that in, uh, in other societies. So one of the things we're not sure of is whether just the very public nature of how this is played out makes it so Western, whereas other non-Western societies perhaps are more private in the way they engage in this behavior. Perhaps something like this or something resembling this might be happening behind closed doors, but we'll never really know. And I suppose also one of the risks of anthropology, particularly in that early period, that period late 19th, early 20th century, where some, in some cases first contact was being made with other societies, is that we contaminate them. I mean, that maybe nobody kisses there in 1900, but maybe by 1950 people are kissing because this stuff isn't static, right? And we can spread it. We, can, we learn things from other cultures. They learn certain behaviors from us, too. Yeah, that's a really important point. Cultures change over time. It's one of the key points we teach in cultural anthropology. They're not static. Um, and, and of course, you have to think about when you're looking at ethnographic data, it's time and place. Um, but our database uh, has, as I mentioned, um, hundreds of cultures that have been indexed that, are, that include ethnographies that are recent, some as recent as 10 or 15 years past. So we do try with these cross-cultural studies to not just look at the Malinowskis and, and data um, of the past, but more recent data as well. So the other thing that we can look at is how the rest of the animal world behaves. And as a dog owner, I can tell you that the dogs don't necessarily kiss exactly the way that we do, but it's certainly very easy to see them and seeing cats grooming each other, licking each other. Dogs seem to be very interested in each other's butts also, which is, I think, where their email addresses are kept. So if you want to <laughs> get in touch with another dog, you have to look there. But um, they're really, I guess, in the ape world, we're really talking bonobos, right, in, in terms of anybody who does something very, very similar to what we do. Yes, we are. I mean, we're talking, if we're, our closest relatives would be anything studied by primatology, of course, right? Um, and I don't think there have been any studies that I'm aware of that show that um, non-human primates kiss quite the same way that humans do. So that's even when we move away from the animal, in the animal kingdom, even when we move away from humans, things seem to change. So the, but there's certainly affection happening between animals and some type of kissing, I would say, you know, among primates. And of course, going to dogs, I'm a dog lover and owner too. And they do touch noses and they, and they do um, lick one another and lick you and touch your nose. So I think that there is something to be said for describing it as, as you know, kissing. I don't know if romantic kissing is the right um, thing, but there's definitely affection uh, displays of affection that happen in the animal kingdom, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we we may anthropomorphize a little bit, but it's pretty clear. I, for some reason or other, I guess because I'm very simple-minded, I get all these videos sent to me or coming up in my feeds of 
you know, like a panther and a Rottweiler who are best friends and stuff. And they're constantly licking each other. Animals cuddling with animals. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And so uh, it, it looks like a certain thing to us. It may not be the same thing, but certainly the idea of using one's mouth and tongue in a comforting way uh, is is out there in other species. Well, this is fascinating stuff. Matthew Longcourt, thank you so much for your time. Director of Membership and Outreach for the Human Relations Area Files at Yale University. Adjunct faculty member in anthropology at the University of Connecticut at Stanford. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with some of your stories and another kissing expert. All episodes of The Colin McEnroe Show are available 24-7 at ctpublic.org slash Colin, which is also where you can sign up for our delightful free fortnightly newsletter, The Newsletter. You can listen to any episode on any podcast app. Have a question or comment? Email us at colinshow at ctpublic.org. Now, back to the show. And today's technical producer is pretty much as usual, the way we like it anyway. Kat Pastor is our technical producer today, and uh, Lily Tyson is our senior producer. This episode was produced by Jennifer LaRue, and we have just one segment left here. We're going to introduce, introduce you to Andrea Demersion, uh, who runs the Kissing Expert website, Instagram feed, and Facebook page, the author of the book Kissing, Everything You Ever Wanted to Know About One of Life's Swedish, Sweetest, or Swedish, actually. The Swedish people actually do uh, kiss occasionally, but sweetest pleasures. Uh, Andrea Demersion, welcome to our show. Hi there. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been great listening to your other guests as well. So one of the things, I mean, so you listen to the other guests, you know, that there, and you already knew anyway, that there uh, isn't a complete 100% uh, human race embrace of the idea of kissing. But there's a theory that it might go back to our so-called caveman days or cave cave person, I think uh, we probably say now. Uh, Explain that, that it may have been a way of acquainting one person with another at a fairly biological and chemical level. Sure. Well, Marcel might also have had some thoughts on this. I'm not uh, an official anthropologist, but I will share from my reading and studying is that uh, anthropologists generally had two views on what the genesis of kissing was way back in the land of the caveman. And um, many believe that it was an intuitive act because cavemen would go around tasting the saliva of young cave women to figure out who was healthy enough to procreate because there's something in the immunoglobulin in our saliva that intuitively, um, I guess, whether it's a taste or something that indicates overall good health. And so that was a driver to seek information, you know, 411 in order to keep the species going. And then it was also believed that, you know, mothers through the process of passing regurgitated food into their little baby's mouths, um, you know, kissing could have evolved from that kind of an act um, but, you know, back in the day, we weren't really thinking of that kind of kissing as as romantic kissing. It was more of a functional act than um, a sexy romantic act. And, um, you know, it'll, it'll be quite some time before you see anything in, in an ancient text about kissing. And the ancient Indians are given a lot of credit for that in their Sanskrit texts, which is, you know, probably around, you know, 1500 BCE. Um, their poetry was talking about quivering lip on tongue, 
and considering the Kama Sutra would also come out of there, you know, a few centuries later um, and have a whole chapter dedicated to kissing. Uh, ancient India was uh, often thought of it as a, as, a, as a hotbed of kissing. And when Alexander the Great went in and through 26 BC and conquered India, he's believed to have brought kissing back to sort of the, the Mediterranean slash Western world where it like snap, crackled and popped and went over to Rome. And the Romans started, you know, putting all sorts of rituals around it, like kissing at the altar to seal the deal. Or men, when they came home at the end of the day, to, they were kissing their wives. It wasn't necessarily a act of affection. It was more about making sure they hadn't been kissing from the vats of homemade wine all day. And basically, there's a, a historical cultural evolution um, over a number of centuries from, you know, prehistoric man into sort of the Middle Ages of um uh, I guess you would refer to that moment as not as the modern era, but not as the ancient era. I just want to make yep. sure, make uh, clear, as so just a point of clarity, there's no evidence that the Rice Krispie elves snap, crackle, and pop kissed one another. Oh, yes, uh, they were back there. They were they starting the breakfast off good every day. <laughs> See, that's not that's not confirmed, and I think we actually might you know get hear from some big cereal company about that. All right, so what we thought would be fun for you would be uh, we collected some stories in the form of voicemails from some of our listeners. Uh, we thought we would play them for the kissing expert and see what she has to say. Right. So this is C1Cat. It's mixed by the amazing Jonathan McPants uh, with some music. This is from our listener, Deb. So my husband and I have become what some call groupies of Carlos Santana. I actually don't have any of his stuff on my regular musical rotation, but one time around 2004, we went to see him at the Oakdale, and it was so much fun that we just go back every year. A little-known fact is that his current wife grew up in Connecticut and is the drummer for the band, so they come to Connecticut every year. But we've been every year since about 2004, with the exception of the COVID years. Anyhow, my favorite song they play live is Foo Foo. So it's our tradition to kiss when Carlos sings those lyrics, and I love this tradition and wonder if the band looks out and notices every year that we sit up close and we have a little smooch during this song. So that's my kissing story. Thanks. Bye. So, Andrea, your thoughts. I mean, we should say so many kissing stories and so much of kissing in popular culture is kind of when is Bruce Willis going to kiss Sybil Shepherd? You know, it's sort of like this attention that builds and builds and builds, this kiss deferred. You don't hear so much about a married couple having this cute little musical tradition. But what, what were your reactions? Well, I, first off, I have to say that I'm a, a massive fan of Carlos Santana. And I think that he is um, intuitively a very, very sexy, sensual man, uh, everything from his lyrics and how he moves and just the way he plays that guitar. He's literally making love to that guitar. And I know he recently was talking about um, his music. And when you get inside of a note, it's as if sort of a beautiful woman has walked into a room. And he refers to that as um, something as exciting as when a woman gives you a French kiss. So that this couple is connected to Carlos in this way with their kissing um, I'm sure if he knew that, he would be so delighted. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think that especially with couples, uh, finding some special little thing like an attraction to a musician 
that conjures up those uh, romantic notions in them, even if they've been married, whether it's five years or 25 years, and it's a kind of a, a spark that ignites the Zaza Zoo in them. I think it's fantastic. Absolutely right. fantastic. Zaza Zoo, by the way, no connection to Snap, Crackle, and Pop. Never, never met uh, the <laughs> two of them. So, yeah. So, um, and I think we should call it Indian kissing, not French kissing. Uh, I know he calls it French kissing, but we now know that it probably started. Well, you know in, how that term came about? Uh, end of World War One, but yeah, you tell the listeners. Yeah, well, you know, it, you know, French kissing is basically kissing with tongue, and the French didn't invent kissing with tongue. That's something something that's also been happening since you know quite some time ago. Um, but when young American servicemen came back from France and they had been exposed to a lot of very sexy central stuff with French women in a way that they might not have had an opportunity in their in their hometowns, America. Um, everything that was sexy and sensual and provocative, they basically started referring to as being French. And so kissing with tongue was coined French kissing by American GIs. Right. And interestingly, the country that did not have an official word for French kissing for a long time was France. Uh, in 2014, they finally approved in Le Petit Robert the term galoche to uh, describe that kind of kissing. But uh, a, country, a country with an academy that regulates the language, they didn't have any word for the thing they're known for. All right, let's play another kissing story. This is from our right. listener, Betsy. This is C2, Cat. My first kiss happened in eighth grade. I knew I was late to the party, having sat out many games of spin the bottle in the basements of my friends' homes. So when a kid at school asked me if I wanted to pair up with a seventh-grade boy named Jimmy at a makeout party on Friday night, I was game. I didn't know Jimmy except by sight, but he was tall and blonde and cute, and he was going to be my first kiss. It was a match made in middle school. A notebook was being passed around with the names of all the pairs, and I saw that my friends were going, too. Cool. We were given the address of a house and told that the owners were out of town, so all the lights would be out, but the front door would be unlocked. That night, we rode our bikes to the house and entered nervously. I stumbled through the dark rooms, trying not to step on the intertwined couples. No one was talking. They were just kissing. I finally found Jimmy sitting on the floor all the good services already taken. So I sat down beside him and without so much as a how do you do, he started kissing me. It was wet and weird. And after what seemed like three seconds, he pulled back and said, do you want to go to third? Before I could answer, the police arrived and we all dove out windows and spilled onto the lawn. I got on my bike and pedaled like mad to get away. I arrived home and nonchalantly said goodnight to my parents and went to bed. The next morning, my father an FBI agent, told me that the police had raided a house full of kids. And did I have a good time? On Monday, back at school, Jimmy broke up with me, but I didn't care. I had kissed a boy. I had finally kissed a boy. You know, there's a lot of things going on, I, I think, uh, in, in that story, uh, Andrea. Sure. I, but uh, tell me what you hear. Well, I hear uh, an exceptionally exhilarating night for uh, for a young person and their first kiss experience from the um, the anticipation of feeling like they're a little bit late to the game, but maybe they're not that that late, but they probably felt so as it compared to their peers. And this was a perfect opportunity to the actual kiss itself, which might have been a little bit, you know, maybe. I wouldn't say disappointing, but not necessarily what they expected. It wasn't maybe as soft and sweet and pretty. It was probably a little bit wet and sloppy, but that's also typical of that age where there's nothing wrong of. And then the exhilaration of 
being chased by the police, a lot was happening that night. Um, so definitely super memorable as a first kiss, extraordinarily so with with all that was going on. But um, a lot of first kisses happen at uh, spin the bottle games, my, my, myself included. And um, you, you sort of have that first night, maybe you have another party that way, but then couples start kind of pairing off and you know, I, I I never really intended to be the kissing expert. It kind of happened as a result of writing a book about kissing. But if I look back to my behavior back in seventh grade and those early kissing days of spin the bottle, I was actually behaving like the maitre d' of kissing for the weekend because we always knew whose parents were going to be either out to dinner or away. So we knew which apartment. I grew up in Manhattan. We knew which apartment was going to be the place to go. And I would sit in math class and I would lay out a floor plan of these apartments <laughs> and I would designate the kissing corners with my friends, with their boyfriends du jour, the boyfriends of the week, because you basically went out with someone for a week, basically for the the, the makeout party. And then, you know, you, you maybe spoke to them on the phone a couple of times and then you broke up and then you paired up with someone else next week. So it was all an adventure and an exploration and just discovery more than anything. And it was, and it was all super sweet. I was actually just back from a trip uh, when I bumped into someone who had been kissing my own brother at one of these makeout parties, and she recalled the love letters uh, he would write to her after this event. And um, I texted him immediately, a picture of the two of us. And this was, you know, maybe, you know, 40 some odd years ago, 45 years ago. And his response was, tell her if I was there right now, I'd take her in the bushes and I'd make out with her. So, you know, sometimes those feelings never leave you. And um, this woman is happily married for 30, over 30 years. And she couldn't have been more delighted to hear that my brother <laughs> still wanted to make out with her. So, you know, there's something very pure and innocent about those days that leave a mark. Um, and uh, they can they can really conjure up a lot of happy memories. Yeah, of course. Now with ring doorbells and simply safe cameras, the whole thing's over. It's all shut to hell. Uh, well, this is true too. Yeah, and, so you uh, didn't you didn't have to worry about those things. If uh, your father works for the FBI, you well, know, you you're go. also gonna, already, you're gonna, that's a ring camera in and of itself. Yeah, it's it's nice to be wanted, but you don't want to be most wanted. Uh, Andrea yeah. Demersion, uh, it's so great to talk to you, the kissing expert uh, and author of the book "Kissing Everything You Wanted to, uh, You Ever Wanted to Know About One's One of Life's Sweetest Pleasures." I don't know why I have so much trouble with that title, but it's time to go anyway. Thanks very much Anytime. to everybody. Anytime. Thank you, thank great you so much for being with us. Thanks to Jennifer Larue, Lily Tyson, Cat Pastor, and Jonathan McPants. So can you- 